Well, thank you, brothers and sisters, for having me here with you today. It's an absolute honour to be here. I've been very encouraged through the series that we've been doing as a church lately. Um, it's been a simple message that we've been hearing coming through time and again, and that is that we can believe God's word, we can do his word, and we can see it realised in our life. And that has been such an encouraging message. And as I've been preparing for this talk today, I have been absolutely immersed in church history, in so many lives of of people who have loved God, who have believed his word, who have acted upon that, and they have seen God's word bear great fruit in their lives. And it gives me great joy to be able to speak to you today about the power of Christ in works. History speaks. Today I want to share testimonies of God's faithfulness, of his goodness, and that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I hope that I can encourage you today and stir up your faith my faith has been so increased in the last few weeks as I've been reading countless stories of lives touched by God and have people who have been uh, calling on God's name and then have seen his power in their lives. And the more you read of this and realise, wow, the God we serve is wonderful and his wonders never cease. They never cease. I'm so uh, encouraged when I look to the book of Acts and I see how God confirmed his word with signs and wonders and great power. I've been reading the book of Acts to the girls again lately at the dinner table. And we were reading just recently about when the, uh, uh, Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin the first time. They were warned very sternly, do not speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And they said, we cannot help but speak of the things we have seen and heard. Because they had seen great things, wonderful things. But what really encouraged me is when they go back to the disciples, they gathered together to pray. And what do they pray? They say, Sovereign Lord, creator of the heavens and the earth, grant us boldness. And I think about that. Who is our God? Who is our God? He is the sovereign Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And he never changes and he never will. And he is alive and active and working in our midst today and throughout all history. And I want to encourage you today. But there is a one verse that has been really on my heart in leading up to this, and I'll go to the next slide. And that is the whole idea of, of super-Christians. Does God just move through people who are, are a super-saint, a super-Christian, a, a superhero of the faith? I think it can be easy to feel that way. We get these people in our heads, and they all become cartoons. They don't become real people to emulate or to follow. They become this sort of elite separate entity of people that go, wow, they, yeah, that was great for them, but what about me? I'm just a regular old guy. You know, what can I expect to see of God in my life? And I have this verse up there. Let's read it. Uh, this is the ending of the book of James. Let's read it in full. Um, I might just grab my Bible to read it. I didn't have it in my notes. Here we go. James chapter 5. He says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. 
And he backs this up by saying, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. An example of a righteous man whose prayer was powerful and effective. But he points out he was just a man just like us. And that's what I want to emphasize in the stories that I share today. These were people just like us who serve a mighty, powerful, miracle-working, wonderful God whose wonders never cease. So when we come to talk about history, you have to start with the early church and the book of Acts. And you have to ask, what happened after the book of Acts? What happened? Well, there's a, a view that goes around a lot that you know, the miracles sort of happened there and then they, they sort of gradually petered out. And I, I don't know that it's necessary quite how we sometimes think about that. So I have a few, uh, a few quotes from people in church history that I wanted to point out that I think will be helpful. So the first one I have is from a guy called Irenaeus. Uh, he was a, a, an, one of the early church fathers and he wrote a book against heresies. And he has this astounding quote and this is, I've got the, uh, up there on the screen, this is 150 years after the start of the church. 150 years. And he says, For some do certainly and truly drive out devils, so that those who have been thus cleansed from evil spirits frequently both believe and join themselves to the church. Amen. Others have foreknowledge of things to come. They see visions and utter prophetic expressions. Others still heal the sick by laying their hands upon them, and they are made whole. Yea, moreover, as I have said, the dead even have been raised up and remained among us for many years. And what shall I more say? It is not possible to name the number of gifts which the church throughout the whole world has received from God in the name of Jesus Christ. That's 150 years after the start of the church and you see a character that very, very similar to what we see in the book of Acts. And I'm reminded where Paul says that I didn't preach the word with fancy arguments or fine-sounding wisdom or words, but with demonstration of the power of God. But we go another 60 years on to the next slide, we get a guy called Origen. And he's, he's quite a cool guy. I like him. <laughs> his word, he wrote some cool books. Anyway, he, he has a quote that's quite interesting and uh, you, you may have even heard this one before. Um, and he says, and I'll just make sure I got it in order because he, he wrote it at the end of his book. He said, moreover, the Holy Spirit gave signs of his presence at the beginning of Christ's ministry and after his ascension, he gave still more. But since that time, these signs have diminished although there are still traces of his presence and a few who have had their souls purified by the gospel and their actions regulated by its influence. So that's written about 215 years after the start of the church and you go, okay. But I found his one really interesting because when I read more of what he wrote, I realised that I probably, we can probably read into that more than what he actually means. For one, he doesn't say that the signs and wonders have ceased. He says they're diminished, they're not as many. But what does it look like in a, in a diminished way? Let's look at some of the other stuff that he wrote right before he makes that statement um, and in some of the chapters before that. He writes, These Greeks can show us nothing regarding those men of whom they speak, 
which is even inferior by a great degree to what Jesus did. And I've got quite a bit here. I'll go on to what I've got on the slide. We assert that the whole habitable world contains evidence of the works of Jesus in the existence of those churches of God which have been founded through him by those who have been converted from the practice of innumerable sins. And the name of Jesus can still remove distractions from the minds of men and expel demons and also take away diseases and produce a marvellous meekness of spirit and complete change of character, the power of God, and a humanity and goodness and gentleness in those individuals who do not feign themselves to be Christians for the sake of subsistence or the supply of any mortal wants, but who have honestly accepted the doctrine concerning God and Christ and the judgment to come. That's a, a beautiful quote about the, the whole power of God, how it affects people, mind, body and soul. And he goes on the next slide. He says, And some give evidence of their having received through this faith a marvellous power, by the cures which they perform, revoking no other name over those who need their help than that of the God of all things and of Jesus, along with a mention of his history. For by these means, we too have seen many persons freed from grievous calamities and from distractions of mind and madness and countless other ills, which could be cured neither by men nor devils. So this is a guy saying the works of God is diminished, but... You look at that and go, it's, it's not stopped. It's still happening. We too have seen many persons freed, countless other ills. And then the last quote I have from him I love because it shows that this is performed by ordinary people. It gets back to my, the, the verse that I read at the beginning and I want to come back to time and again. Elijah was a human being just like us. The prayer of righteous person is powerful and effective. And so he has this where he writes, If then the Pythian priestess is beside herself when she prophesies, what spirit must that be which fills her mind and clouds her judgment with darkness, unless it be of the same order with those demons which many Christians cast out of persons possessed with them? And this we may observe they do without the use of any curious arts of magic or incantations, but merely by prayer and simple adjurations, which the plainest person can use. Because for the most part, it is unlettered persons who perform this work, thus making manifest the grace which is in the word of Christ and the despicable weakness of demons, which in order to be overcome and driven out of the bodies and souls of men, do not require the power and wisdom of those who are mighty in argument and most learned in matters of faith, it's done through unlettered, plain people. And that is the God we serve, because it isn't about us. It's about who we serve, and his wonders never cease. If we jump forward another 200 years, we come to a, a pretty favourite dude of mine, uh, Augustine. So he writes um, about 400 years after the start of the church. There's a lot has happened in the church to this point, um, there's been a lot of uh, um, unbelief and the theory of cessationism has become quite prevalent. Augustine's really interesting because he um, has a dramatic conversion, which um, in part is brought about by hearing of a guy who's been performing signs and wonders. It's quite amazing. But he is schooled in the, um, in the way of cessationism and he actually argues for it in his early days. But his story is amazing because after a life of ministry, 
and working in God's service, he writes a, a monumental work called The City of God. It's a 26-book work that has uh, been used uh, in theology ever since. And in the, this, the last book, he writes a really interesting chapter which he calls of miracles which were wrought that the world might believe in Christ and which had not ceased since the world believed. And in this chapter, he goes on to list countless miracles that he has personally witnessed across his ministry and has caused him to change his mind about, the, um, about God ceasing to demonstrate with power what he is able to do. He, uh, he lists several people of blindness being cured. He, uh, he talks about a man who was healed at baptism, a man who was paralysed and had a hernia. They baptised him, he came up out of the water completely whole, completely sound. Uh, he, he's, there's n- numerous examples that he, that he talks about and he has, I've got one up here because the beautiful about, thing about Augustine that he writes with a really nice way of um, turn of phrase and this story is great because so many of the stories he turns them back in glory to God. It's all about glory to God, about what God can do and what he has done and how he confirms his word. Up on the screen there I have a story about a man that when he first came to Carthage um, gave him hospitality and he stayed with this man. This man got very sick and he ended up having surgery on a, um, an infection and the surgery didn't go well and this guy was dying and the surgeons looked at him and they said basically you're going to die. Um, we, we can try giving, doing another surgery and hope that that works but it's quite likely that you would actually die in, in, in that surgery. And this guy was in incredible pain and this, the first surgery had been incredibly painful as well. And so he gets his Christian brothers together and they end up praying. And I've got up on the screen a bit about this and let's read it in his language because he, he writes so well. He says, we went to prayer, but while we in the usual way were kneeling and bending to the ground, the man who was sick cast himself down as if someone were hurling him violently to the earth. And he began to pray. But in what a manner, with what earnestness and emotion, with what a flood of tears, with what groans and sobs that shook his whole body and almost prevented him speaking, who can describe? For myself, I could not pray at all. This only I briefly said in my heart, O Lord, what prayers of your people do you hear if you hear not these? Well, the dreaded day dawned. I think next slide. The servants of God were present as they had promised to be. The surgeons arrived. All that the circumstances required was ready. The frightful instruments are produced, all locked on in wonder and suspense, while those who have most influence with the patient are cheering his fainting spirit. His limbs are arranged on the couch so as to suit the hand of the operator. The knots of the bandages are untied. The part is bared. The surgeon examines it and, with knife in hand, eagerly looks for the sinus that is to be cut. He searches for it with his eyes. He feels for it with his finger. He applies every kind of scrutiny and he finds a perfectly firm cystatrix. No words of mine can describe the joy and praise and thanksgiving to the merciful and almighty God, which was poured from the lips of all with tears of gladness. Let the scene be imagined rather than described. Gorgeous, isn't it? It's beautiful. Our God is a miracle-working God and when he moves, it's amazing. And uh, I think you go to the next slide. This is what he concludes in this chapter. He says, what am I to do? I am so pressed by the promise of finishing this work that I cannot record all the miracles I know. And doubtless, 
several of our adherents, when they read what I have narrated, will regret that I have... I can't read that far. <laughs> I've omitted so many, which they, as well as I, certainly know. And I just think, glory to God. What a great testimony. Our God is a wonder-working God, and he uses men and women like us to show his grace. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. So I want to move on now and just share a couple of stories. Um, I've got this slide here. I want to share, uh, we'll see how much time I've got. But uh, these are three stories that have moved me in my life. And it starts, go, go back, go back. to the yeah. So here we have the, um, where these people started. And I chose these people because I think it's quite clear that they're men just like us. The first person you see there is a shepherd boy. He's a slave. He was captured from his hometown as a young boy, about 14, 15. He's, a, uh, he's hungry, he's cold, he's needy. He is not bound to continue his education. He's in, in a pretty poor state. A young shepherd boy on, on the island of Ireland and we'll look soon at what God does through him. The second lady there, she's a uh, housemaid in London. Uh, she, again, um, stopped her education at 14, was uh, very slow with learning. Uh, she wanted to be a missionary, uh, went to mission school, got dismissed after three months. Uh, she failed all her exams. Uh, the people in charge said, look, we appreciate your heart, but um, we, don't, we think, she was 27 when she went to mission school, and they said, we think you're already too old um, compared to some of the younger missionaries we have coming up who are eager to go. Um, we don't think you'll be able to learn the language. Uh, we don't think you're going to be a good fit. And they told her to go back to being a housemaid. Basically, they had some Chinese missionaries who'd come back to London. They said, you can serve God by serving these missionaries as their housemaid. So that's, that's the second lady I hope to talk about. And the last one... There's a young man, in, uh, when we meet him, he's 17 years old, uh, again in England, uh, and he is yeah, 17 years old, he's grown up in a Christian family, but he has walked away from God, and he has been working um, with a group of people and seen their life, uh, they're very worldly, he's sort of grown envious of it, and um, thinks, why, why, why am I stuck in this stuffy religion, what, what am I you know, doing here? Very, very normal people, people just like you and I, and yet, let me tell you what God does through their lives. So first we have Patrick, he's known as St. Patrick these days, um, that, was, that came a lot later. A lot of you probably know him from St. Paddy's Day, <laughs> we think of uh, green and leprechauns, that sort of stuff. I read Patrick's uh, confessions, he wrote a story, an account of his life, in his own words, quite a... Um, uh, oh, a few months ago, and before that, I didn't really know anything about him except for what I've seen from the green and <laughs> leprechauns. <laughs> the man himself I found to be incredibly compelling. Sometimes legends and myths arise and actually cloud the real person and turns him into a cartoon. But the actual person, Patrick, I found to be, yeah, it, it, what God did in him. So he was a young man, um, fairly uh, wild in his youth, um, and he grew up in a Christian household, but he didn't have faith. But then he was captured. 
captured by Irish slave traders. They tore him from his comfortable home where he was a fairly well-off man as far as he could be in England at that time. It was a rough time. He was around uh, the 500s. Uh, so the Roman Empire was collapsing. Pax Romana, the Roman peace, had, had stopped pretty much. He gets captured and all, all of a sudden he's thrust into a life of, of brutality. He is hungry. He's poor. He's barely clothed. He's cold. He's away from all he knows. He's forced to serve as a shepherd in the hills of Ireland. And there, I've got his words here, he says, It was there that the Lord opened up my awareness of my lack of faith. Even though it came about late, I recognised my failings, so I turned with all my heart to the Lord my God. And he looked down on my loneliness and had mercy on my youthful ignorance. He guarded me before I knew him. And before I came to wisdom and could distinguish between good and evil, he protected me. And consoled me as a father does for his son. And that is why I cannot be silent. This is why he wrote his confessions. He said, I cannot be silent, nor would it be good to do so, about such great blessings and such a gift that the Lord so kindly bestowed in the land of my captivity. This is how we can repay such blessings. When our lives change and we come to know God, to praise and bear witness to his great wonders before every nation under heaven. Amen. When God works in our lives, we can't help but speak of what he has done. He says, When I arrived in Ireland, I tended sheep every day, and I prayed frequently during the day. More and more, the love of God increased, and my sense of awe before God. Faith grew, and my spirit was moved, so that in one day I would pray up to 100 times, and at night perhaps the same. I even remained in the woods and on the mountain, and I would rise to pray before dawn in snow and ice and rain. I never felt the worst for it, and I never felt lazy, as I realise now the spirit was burning in me at that time. He has an encounter with God over there in the land of his captivity. And God starts to work in his life in powerful ways. God um, instructs him in a dream to escape, and it's a, it's a beautiful way that the way he, he escapes, God leads and directs him. And uh, he ends up back, by God's power, back in England. But the people that he's come with, he, um, he, he managed to get passage on a boat with um, some, uh, a rather unruly group of people. And they've arrived in England, and they're walking in land, and they run out of food. And he's been telling them about the God that he serves. And these people, they, say, they, they turn to him and they say, what about this Christian? You tell us that your God is great and all-powerful. Why can't you pray for us since we're in a bad state with hunger? There's no sign of us finding a human being anywhere. And he says, I said to them with some confidence, turn in faith with all your hearts to the Lord my God because nothing is impossible for him so that he may put food in your way even enough to make you fully satisfied. He has an abundance everywhere and with the help of God, this actually happened. And he goes on to recount that at that moment, a herd of pigs came storming over the ridge right into their midst. And the men grabbed as many pigs as they could. They, killed, they cut them up, they burned them, they ate of them. They feasted for two days. And they praised God. God does these works for his glory, for his name, for his renown. Patrick was just a, a normal guy, but he said the great God, he believed in him, 
He acted on his word. He trusted in him and God came through for him. And God had a great purpose. This shepherd boy was going to be used for great things. So when he got back to England to his parents, his parents said, after all the troubles and trials that you have been, please never leave us again. And then one night he has a dream. A dream in which a man by the name Victorianus comes to him with a group, a stack of letters. And he hands the first letter to him and he looks at it and it says, the voice of the Irish. And he, as he opens this letter, he hears these voices or these Irish people calling him from a place he knew, the wood of a clute in Ireland. And they're calling to him and they're saying, holy man, come walk among us again. And it reminds me in the book of Acts when Paul has the, the dream about the Macedonian man saying to come. So he has this dream, this call, come back to Ireland, to the land of your slavery, captivity. Tell us about Jesus. He has this call and he, re, he responds. His family don't want him to go. Even the church think he's unqualified. He's not a learned man. But he goes and... God confirms his word with signs and wonders. And the land of Ireland, which incidentally I should say, Ireland had been a very hard place to reach. It was, it was the ends of the earth back then. The Romans called it Hibernia, which is the land of eternal winter. It was the edges of the world and they tried to reach. There were some Christians there, but uh, it had been a really hard place to reach. The church had actually appointed a bishop to go to the Irish to teach them about God. And he lasted two years before he left in disgust and he went and had a fruitful ministry in England but Ireland had been hard to reach but God sent this shepherd boy who knew the customs of the Irish knew the language and knew the power of his God and he went to Ireland and he preached and he saw let me read what he what, what he wrote he says how has this happened in Ireland never before did they know God except to serve idols and unclean things but now they have become the people of the Lord and I called children of God, the sons and daughters of the leaders of the Irish, are seen to be monks and virgins of Christ. There was a great turning in Ireland. And Ireland actually became known as the land of saints and scholars. It was a, as the Roman Empire fell, it was in Ireland that a lot of the, uh, the works of the early church were preserved, where lots of um, the culture, the writings were preserved. But it was also Irish ministries who went out across Europe and ministered to the Germanic tribes that had been taking over Europe and spread the gospel. So God knew all this. He knew all this and he used a simple boy, a simple shepherd boy who had a heart for him. Because Elijah was just a man like us. But he served a great God and we serve the same God who is alive. He is the same today, yesterday, forever. Our God is good and gracious and his desire is for us. Let's go to the next one. Gladys Alwood, one of my heroes. I read her book when I was about nine. Most of the cool things in my life happened when I was nine, so <laughs> maybe I'm collating everything with that year. But her story moved me immensely. And I, as I read it again just this week, it moved me again. Here was a maid who had a heart for God, who felt a call from God to go to China as a missionary. And yet she was as they politely put it, slow of learning. She was unskilled, didn't have a, um, a rich background at all, didn't have uh, finances or anything like that. But she felt called to go to China. And she had faith that God could do it. So her story, when I, I first told her she had been rejected and she was sent off as a, as a housemaid, 
She does a little bit of ministry in England, but she can't get this call to China out of her. And so eventually she says, Lord, I'm going to pay my own way to China somehow. So she gets a job in London as a housemaid. She arrives there. She spends most of her money to get to London uh, from where she'd been. And she gets to this house. of, Incidentally, it's actually um, the house of a, a uh, retired explorer who'd spent a lot of his life exploring China. Um, she gets there. She's got a couple, couple of pennies to her name. And she lays out her Bible on her bed with the money that she has. And she says, Lord, here I am. Here's my Bible. Here's my money. Use me. Use me. And it's, God answers straight away. The, the lady of the house calls her to her and says, I always reimburse the, uh, the train fare of people who come to me and gave her, gave her some money. So her money, I think it was about 20 times more than what she had. <laughs> straight away, she's like, oh, this is good. This is good. This is a good start. Answer to prayer. But anyway, she saves up her money until she gets three pounds. She was not a big earner. She finally gets three pounds together and she goes into one of the docks and she goes to the travel agent and she comes in and says, I want to go to China. How much does the ticket cost? Because she actually has no idea how much it costs. And she's being, I've got three pounds together. Let's hope I can put this down as a down payment. Well, the guy laughs at her. He, he does. He laughs at her. He's like, stop wasting my time. Off you go. And she says, no, no, no. Here's three pounds. I'm putting it down as a down payment. I want to go to China. And he says, a ticket to China costs 90 pounds. Three pounds is <laughs> not even close. And she says, is that the cheapest way to get to China? And the guy looks there and he goes, well, there is another way you can get to China, but you, you end up arriving dead. <laughs> and she says, how much that, is that way? <laughs> and he says, that's 47 pounds. And she's like, that would suit me just fine. And she puts down three pounds as a deposit for a ticket to China through Russia, which Russia was at war at that point. Um, and so, hence the uh, reference to arriving dead. But anyway, she says, by the time I get there, the war will probably be over. So, let's just go for it. So, she puts down the deposit in faith, knowing that God has called her to China and she's going to do all that she can. And the guy asks her, where exactly in China are you going? She says, I have no idea, but just get me to China. It's like, okay. So, every month, she takes in what money she has and she puts it towards this ticket to China. Every month. And every month, the guy asks her, do you know where you're going? Do you know where you're going? She's like, no, but I'm going to China. Well, one day she's at church and she's talking to one of the older people and not really listening very well. And all of a sudden, this older lady says, oh, you remember Mrs. Lawson? She's, a, she's an old friend of mine. She came back from China as a missionary. Um, she came back to retire. And she only lasted a year before she went, stuff this, I'm going to retire in China. <laughs> and she's gone back. And when she left, she said, oh, oh, that I would have somebody that I could train up to take over my work as I, when, I, when I pass on. And Gladys instantly said, that's me. That's me. And the, the lady she was talking to was like, what, are you, what? What even? But she managed to convince her to give this lady's address. And she wrote her a letter and said, I've heard that you're in China, that you're looking for someone to train up. Please, can I come join you? And she writes back a letter and says, if you can get to China, find me. Um, I'll be in, I should be in this town of Tientsin in the middle of China. You get to there and then you can join me. And she's like, okay, I know where I'm going now. I know where I'm going. So she saves up her pennies and eventually the ticket is paid and I, I need to move on because time is getting short. But 
basically, she has this incredible journey through Russia, through a war zone, goes through many dangers that she was probably not even really aware of just how much danger she was in. But God comes through time and time again. It's an incredible story. I encourage you to read it. But she ends up in China. She gets to this, uh, this lady in China. When she gets to where she is, you find out she's actually even further away from there. She has to travel right into the heart of China. Eventually, she gets a mule because uh, the road stops. And she travels over a little mountain track for two days and reaches a little town called Yangcheng. And there she finds Mrs. Lawson, who is a very fiery uh, uh, lady from Scotland, uh, quite the temper, quite an interesting lady. Uh, but she's uh, happy to have Gladys there and to let Gladys join in. So Gladys joins in and they, uh, they start trying to work together, but they, they're called white devils by the, uh, by the Chinese. And they're finding it's very hard to reach them. And so they're praying, Lord, what can we do? And God gives them this vision to open up an inn because a lot of the, uh, the mountaineers with their mules would come each night and they would come to the city of Yangcheng on their journey so that they could be uh, protected by its walls from the, the robbers and, and wolves outside. And so they think, hey, let's open up an inn. These uh, mountaineers will come, they'll stay here, we'll tell them the stories of the Bible. They will then travel all throughout the provinces of China and they will tell about what, the, the story of God. What, you know, what a brilliant plan. And so they start this inn and it, uh, it involves some very, uh, very hands-on stuff. She, uh, I think her skills as a, as a maid probably came in quite, quite useful because she was able to really get, get in there and get, get onto this. And God does amazing things. But one of the things that really struck me as reading a story again was that it was only 10 months after being in China. 10 months, that's not long, not long at all. She's only just starting to grasp the very basics of the, of the language. When the lady that she's staying with, the lady who's been there for 50 years, who knows all the customs, knows the language, intimately acquainted with the ways of the people, was able to, and, and was also receiving funding, um, and so was able to support what they're doing. She has a terrible accident and dies. So Gladys is suddenly in this little town in China, two days away from the nearest white person. There's nobody who speaks English. And what does she do? Does she give up? Does she head off home? We, we know the answer. She doesn't. What would I have done in that situation? I do not know. I, I look at her story. I think 10 months, you're in a, a foreign land, in a, a, a little place where people are calling you white devil. When she'd walk outside, people, the kids would throw mud at her. And she's trying to reach people with the gospel. And she can hardly even speak the language. And now the, uh, the, the source of income has stopped. Uh, her source of wisdom has, <laughs> and, and training has gone. She is fully reliant on God. And God comes through. And that is, it's a powerful what God does because not long after this lady dies, the Mandarin of the town, that's the, the leader, comes and visits her with all his soldiers, with all his finery. She's kind of beside herself. You know, how, do you, how do you greet someone like this? What's the protocol? What do you do? You know? And the Mandarin has a special assignment for her. He says a new government has come in and as new governments do, they have new rules. And I have to enforce these new rules. And what was the rule? They had decided that foot binding was a practice that had to be outlawed. And foot binding was a, a terrible thing that was happening in China at the time where um, ladies' feet from when they were a baby were um, bound in half so that the feet would grow under each other um, because they had a belief that the smaller the foot, the more pretty the lady. 
And this meant that ladies um, were growing up very hobbled and not able to walk well. And so this new government had come in and they'd gone, we're going to outlaw. And they said, we're going to hold each Mandarin personally, personally accountable for their province, that this practice has to stop. And so this Mandarin comes to Gladys, who's only just starting to learn the language, forced into this situation, wondering how she's going to keep paying all the bills. And he says, I was thinking, how am I going to you know, enforce this decree? I was thinking, I need a lady, because it can't be a man, because it's wrong for a man to look on a lady's feet. It has to be a lady, and it needs to be a lady with unbound feet, so that she has the ability to scramble all over the province and go wherever she can to, to do this. And he thought, who do I have in this province who can do that? And I thought, ah, Gladys Howard, the white devil. <laughs> and so he goes to her and he says, I'm going to give you two soldiers, I'm going to give you a mule, I'm going to give you a daily stipend, a source of income, and I'm going to send you out. And she thinks, is this a job offer? Or is this a command? <laughs> she thinks it sure sounds like a command. But as she thinks about it, she thinks, how good is this? That I'm going to go in the employ of the Mandarin throughout the whole province with soldiers to protect me, and they're going to be forced to listen to me. What a great opportunity to share the gospel. And so she says to the Mandarin right there, and then she says, I am a Christian, not a foot inspector. I would do what you ask, but know this, wherever I go, I'll be talking about the God I serve and the faith I have, and I will be seeking to turn the ladies that I talk to to believe in the same God as I. Well, the Mandarin was quite shocked at her uh, abruptness. He fought for a while, and then he looked at her and said, my concern is that the foot binding stops. Religion is not. Go and do as you will. And then he says this, he says, and in fact, if they do turn to your Christian God, maybe they'll look at your feet and think they should emulate you and there'll be a little more reason to stop the foot binding. So she goes with the blessing of the Mandarin, and within a few months she is completely fluent. A lady who had been told that she would probably never be able to learn Chinese, completely fluent in the Yangcheng dialect, and she's able to speech, uh, preach the gospel all throughout China, and I need to move on because it's getting good. But there's so much of her story that is amazing. Um, I, I'll share just two things quickly about her. Maybe, maybe we'll skip the next one. It's... Um, because it's just so powerful, because she goes around preaching about God, about this God, this great God that she serves, and eventually she gets tested, tested mightily on it. So one day she's at her inn, and all of a sudden one of the Mandarin's people comes with a piece of red paper, very official looking, I don't know what a red paper means, but it, it must be something, comes in and starts speaking this crazy fast stream of Chinese that she can't even really make out what he's saying, and her cook is there, and he goes... Oh boy, and he takes off running, pretty much. Uh, turns out there was a riot at the prison. There was a riot at the prison. Some of the prisoners had got hold of an axe. They were going around. They'd been, um, it was quite a chaotic scene. They were rioting. There'd been people killed. It was going crazy. And the Mandarin had sent for Gladys Alwood. And she goes, what on earth for? What do I have to do with a prison riot? But the red paper is very official. She has to go. So she heads off to the prison, and the prison governor is there. And he's like, oh, thank you, thank you for coming. She's like, what do you want with me? He's like, why don't you go in with your soldiers and stop this rioting? He's outside the walls of the prison with his soldiers. And he's like, oh, no, no, we're going there, we're going to get killed. And she's like, okay. And he says, you need to go in there and stop them. And she's like, what? Where does, where does that start? And he says, but you've been going around the whole province telling everybody that you had the living God inside of you. The living God. 
You go in there, you stop them. They can't kill you. You have the living God, don't you? And she goes, I have the living God, but I'm not sure you quite know the nuance of the theology here. And she's like, how do I explain to you that, yes, God is with me, but that doesn't mean I can't be killed. He looks at her blankly and says, you have the living God. You go in and stop the riot. Well, what a test of faith that is. And so she goes in. She goes in. And that's the end of the story. So, But she went in. <laughs> she went in. No, it's not the end of the story. It, it goes, she goes in. The man with the axe is right in front of her, looking at her. And he has the axe right. And she goes, you, stop. Put it down right now. And the axe falls to the ground. And she says, everybody, come line up in front of me. And all the prisoners who have been riding going crazy, there's literally dead bodies on the ground right near her. They come and they line up in front of her. And she, she scolds them a bit. <laughs> don't know if that's the time for scolding, but uh, you know, tells them, what, what's this chaos that you're running and doing? And he says, what's the meaning of this? I want you to clean up the yard. Get it all cleaned up. I want you to appoint a spokesman and tell me why you've been doing this. And so the men get into details and they go and they clean up the yard. And then one of the men comes to her and he says, look, we're hungry, we're cold, we don't have anything to do here and we don't really know what happened, but a fight broke out, somebody had an axe, we, things got out of hand, we're sorry. And she is appalled by the conditions that she found in that prison. And so she goes to the man they're in and, she said, and, and the prison governor says, what do you expect is going to happen? These guys are getting no food except for food that relatives send in to them, which... Not all of them have relatives, so there's lots of fights that break out of that. They're hardly clothed. They've got absolutely nothing to do. And so she starts a ministry in that prison. Along with all the other ministry opportunities that God has opened up, he's opened the ministry here in the prison. And these prisoners, quite a few of them come to know Christ as their personal Lord and Saviour. It's an amazing thing. But I'll just finish with this one story of Gladys because it's so powerful because I think, of, you know, look at where she started, the housemaid in London. You know, just... And made with not much prospect of doing much for God at all. And I want to just finish with this story of her life to see how God takes people who are just very humble, very meek, very lowly, and he does great things with them. Because the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And Elijah was a man just like us. And now God is still working today. So this Mandarin was a man of great culture and learning. He, from a little kid... He'd been forced to spend hours every day studying all the philosophies of China. Well, for 10 years, he saw Gladys at work. Eventually, the Japanese attacked China. They were involved in war. Yang Cheng got bombed. There were great hardships they went through. Gladys was in the thick of it all, caring for people, uh, looking after the, the, the sick. She ended up adopting several children. She ended up running an orphanage with, uh, I think, nearly 200 children. The Mandarin saw all this, and one day the uh, Japanese were coming back to Yangcheng after they had been through a while before, and the government informed them that they were doing a policy of scorched earth. They were basically they were like, burn everything, leave nothing for the Japanese, and get out of there. And so they go through and they destroy their city. They, every roof, they cave in, they burn their crops, everything, and then they run away as refugees. But the Mandarin says, I'm going to hold one final feast before we leave Langcheng. It's a day of great sadness, you'd say, yeah? Great sadness. I want to hold one final feast, and he invites Gladys to come. And so they have this feast in the Mandarin's palace, with all the attendants there, all the officials, all the who's who of the region there, 
at this final feast. And he, the Mandarin gets up and he says, I have a speech I want to make. And he speaks for 20 minutes about Gladys. He says, this lady, I met her first when I asked her to be my foot inspector. And then she went to my prison and stopped a riot. And then she reformed the conditions in the prison, gave them hope, gave them work to do so they could earn some money for themselves. She has been uh, going around where people are having furs and being a midwife. She's adopted children, children that were being sold. She has taken them in under her wing. He says, I have seen all that Gladys does and I've seen all that she is. And now before all of you, I want to announce that I am becoming a Christian. I'm becoming a Christian. And I think, wow, the wonder of God, that he uses the foolish things of the world to reach a man like that. That housemaid of London, I look at her and I think, glory to God. And if God can use a lady like her, he can use me, he can use you. If we give ourselves over to God, our God is the same yesterday, today and forever. His wonders never cease. He responds to prayer. And I've got... Hudson Taylor, but I'm well over time, so I'll stop there. But let's just go right to the very end. I have a verse there, and a lot of this message was inspired by Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith, um, which is full of so many accounts of faithfulness in the Bible, of people who loved God, who saw God come through for them. And that cloud of witnesses that it talks about has been expanding ever since. The church, our history, we stand on the shoulders of giants, and yet they are men just like Elijah was. So in Hebrews 12, the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. If there's anything that you got from my talk this morning, I hope you see that Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever and that he is powerful and wonderful and beautiful and that a life spent serving him will bear much fruit. Amen.